Shalom, shalom, beautiful friends. I'm so happy to see you. I'm so happy to see you and to learn today about loving our neighbor as ourself. Loving our neighbor as ourself via hafta lereyecha kamocha. And we are going to start with a little poll to kind of get our, uh, our hearts warmed up, our minds open. Loving others. I love Jews uniquely, even while I care for all humanity. Number two, I love all humans equally. Number three, love? That's just for my closest friends and family. Okay, let's see where you fall out here. How you how you think about love for different types of people. Give you another three, two, one. Let's see our results here. Okay, I love Jews uniquely, even while I care for all humanity, 63%. I love all humanity equally, 25%. Love, that's just for my closest friends and family, 13%. Okay, all right, we'll have some fun together uh, today. Looking forward to this uh, very rich topic. My presentation is on the shorter side today uh, to maximize our conversation. So here we go, friends. There continues to be fascinating research regarding the psychological capacity for empathy. More and more, it has philosophical implications as well for how we think about the human being as a moral agent. The Harvard philosopher and cultural commentator, Professor Susan Nyman, writes in her great book, Moral Clarity. Even further, one leading neurologist, V.S. Ramachandran, has described the mirror neurons that react equally to pain in one patient and the observation of pain in another as Dalai Lama cells. These neurons, mirror neurons, were dissolving the barrier between the self and others, showing that our brains are actually wired up for empathy and compassion. Notice that one isn't being metaphorical in saying this. The neurons in question simply can't tell if you or the other person is being poked. It's as if the mirror neurons were doing a virtual reality simulation of what's going on in the other person's brain, thereby almost feeling the other's pain. If research continues to support the idea that we are hardwired for empathy, it would be powerful confirmation of the naturalist view the 18th century acquired without access to primate or neurological research, moral sentiment. sentiment Sentimentalists like Hutchison, Smith, and Hume argued that we are naturally endowed with feelings of sympathy and concern for others that move us to act in their behalf. 
Strict Kantians may hold that without being founded on principle, such actions are not fully moral, an objection that has been raised by DeWall's claims about the moral capacities of apes. Okay, friends, so that's kind of a mouthful, but we may have thought, oh, babies and kids, they don't know anything about empathy and morality. Rather, we have to school them. We have to educate them to care for people um, because we adults naturally um, or <laughs> by our, our conditioning care for people and we need to teach the kids. But it may actually be, the, be true that we are neuro neurologically hardwired for empathy and that um, rather than having to cultivate it, that actually there are people who silence it and turn it off um, but that natural capacity is always there. Perhaps we become skeptical of helping people because we got burnt. Perhaps we turned off the capacity for empathy because it hurt to feel what others are feeling. In any case, we do see this neurological research that empathy may in fact be hardwired right from the start. John Rawls, the great 20th century Harvard philosopher, designed a thought experiment for, cul for cultivating empathy and for setting policy. I think this is really brilliant. In which he suggested that citizens determine a moral problem and its solution collectively, but without knowing what role each citizen would have in its implementation. In this quote unquote veil of ignorance, one could end up the CEO of a Fortune 500 company or a minimum wage earner at McDonald's or whatever they pay over there. One would and should vote to construct a society so that wherever one were to randomly end up on the totem pole, they would consider it fair and their needs would be satisfied. So let me just make sure that's clear to everyone. Remember that game as a kid, um, what's it called? Where you have, to, you have to sit in a chair and there's one, there's one less chair than people walking around. What's the game called? Musical chairs, <laughs> musical chairs. So uh, imagine a game of musical chairs and on one chair, it says you're gonna make a million dollars a year. Another chair says you're gonna make a hundred thousand dollars a year. Another chair says 25,000. Then one says, you know, uh, uh, $8,000 a year. And one is gonna say a thousand dollars, you know, a thousand dollars a year. And, and all these chairs and you walk in a circle and at any moment the music stops and you're gonna sit in a chair. You want to construct the options of chairs so that if you were to participate in this game, you would find it fair wherever you landed in the lottery of life. And so that's Rawls's experiment of how we construct a just society, that we cultivate the empathy such that the inevitable um, options that are available to us, if we were to land in any of them, in, um, that we would consider it fair where we landed. Um, you could also do the same for countries. If you landed born in El Salvador, if you landed born in Luxembourg, if you landed born in uh, Kiev, where um, would it be fair where you landed in the lottery of life where you're born? So friends, what is it actually that evokes empathy? Often simply the face of another. The Hebrew language seems to have known this already. What's the word for, he for face in Hebrew, anyone? How do you say face? Hanim. Hanim. Hanim literally means face, but also means interiority. Interiority, the, the, the inner stuff of the self. When the prefix bet or be, resulting in turning panim into bifnim, is added to the word panim, it means inside. Bifnim, we say, inside of, of yourself and is the literal opposite of bachutz, meaning outside, bifnim inside, bachutz outside. So when we see another's face to a certain degree, we see their internal world. One's bifnim is awakened through the exteriority of the panim of another, invoking empathy within. In fact, the Torah describes Moshe's unique relationship with and closeness to God is Asher Yidau Elohim Panim Al Panim, which God knew him face to face. These words are meant to be understood allegorically, not literally, conveying to the reader that God knew Moses intimately 
in a way that God knew no other, right? So panim, the exterior face, and bifni, meaning inside, the face of another reveals their interiority, and our exteriority reveals our interiority. So this empathy for another, as opposed to just pity or sympathy, right? Pity is the lowest, then sympathy, then empathy, then solidarity, we might say. So pity is like, oh, I feel bad for you. I'm glad I don't have your life. Oh, I really feel bad that you just broke your toe. Jeez, your life must be horrible. Sympathy is like, all right, like, oh, I, I, I kind of feel it. I don't want to feel it. You know, uh, you know, I, I really do feel bad. I don't just pity you. I feel bad you're going through that. Good luck. You know, empathy is, whoa, I'm really feeling what you're feeling. You know, solidarity says, I'm going to put my empathy into a behavioral change. I feel what you're feeling, or maybe I don't. And we're going to get, we're going to get to that in a moment, right? Maybe I don't, but I'm going to act in solidarity with you or allyship with you. Now, why do I say maybe we don't? I don't want to fall into the trap that empathy is the highest. We sometimes think that empathy is the pinnacle of all. However, we know many people who have an enormous emotional capacity for empathy, but don't know how to translate that into being helpful to other people. We also know people who their, their capacity for empathy is a little bit dimmed. They don't want to feel so much, right? But they know how to help. Think about the doctor. I'm at, which doctor do you want? The one who's really feeling what you're feeling, but they don't really work so hard to help you. Or the one who they're kind of emotionally cold, the stereotypical doctor who has no emotion, no bedside manners, but they're going to keep showing up and keep doing everything you need, right? Which doctor do you want? Right. So, of course, in, in general, empathy or no empathy, we choose empathy, but empathy with, that's not translated into being helpful versus someone who operates by principle instead of by empathy. And that principle moves them to act. I think we would choose the latter. So it's not so clear um, that there's one um, that there's one capacity that is going to outweigh the other. And nonetheless, this empathy for uh, another as opposed to just pity or sympathy, enables one to see the other in oneself and to see oneself in the other. In blurring the boundaries of the self and the other, a space for love opens up, right? So one naturally loves a child because it's an extension of oneself, right? We don't just love them for their pure otherness. We love them because they're kind of a part of us. Right, that's kind of um, what happens in a relationship that's deeply committed as well, right? So, um, so too, when we cultivate an empathy where we're actually an us, not just a me and you, that's where empathy can be actualized. And so, the Torah mitzvah of v'yahav to the reyecha kamocha, love your fellow as you love yourself, is described by Rabbi Akiva as being a fundamental principle of the Torah. This concept is taken a step further in the Talmud. Here's what it says over there. And we saw this uh, last week. We saw this actually two weeks ago. Sorry. We saw this two weeks ago. But just to um, look at it again, because it's an important story. There's a story about a Gentile who came before Shammai and said to him, I will convert you if you teach me the entire Torah while I stand on one foot. Shammai pushed him away with the measuring stick that's in his hand. This is the typical approach of traditional Judaism today as well. If somebody doesn't take the process seriously, doesn't want to engage in a full process, thinks of it as a game or as simplistic, they say, thanks for coming out. We, we wish you luck. You know, go, um, go choose another religion that's going to have simple demands of you. The Gentile then went to Hillel, who converted him. And Hillel told him, whatever is hateful to you, don't do to your friend. This is the whole Torah. And the rest is explanation. Go and study. That would be described as liberal Judaism today. He says, okay. You know, there's a lot to learn, but if you understand basically the essence of what this is about, right, you're welcome. You're welcome to join. The Sefer HaChinuch teaches us how this mitzvah works on a social level. Sefer HaChinuch says the elements included in this mitzvah to love another like as we love ourselves follow the general principle that one should treat another person in the ways that, that they would treat themselves, protecting their property preventing them from being harmed, speaking only well of them, respecting them, and certainly not glorifying oneself at their expense. 
The sages have said regarding this last point, one who glorifies themselves at the expense of their fellow has no share in the world to come. Whereas one who behaves with others in a loving and peaceful manner fulfills the verse, Israel, by whom I am glorified. The basis for this mitzvah is well known, namely that a person will respond in kind to the way that they are treated. Fulfilling this mitzvah can bring peace to all loving beings. Sefer Chinuch adds that to love another is not just about them, but their belongings as well. Says it means to love each member of Israel with a soul love, that one should have compassion for a Jew and their property, just as one has compassion for themselves and their own property, as the verse states, and you shall love your fellow as you love yourself. And so, um, and so this is very interesting that loving another not only includes positive actions, as we would assume, but also avoiding negative actions towards them, as if we thought about it, we would conclude as well. We are to treat others how we'd want to be treated and not treat them also how we'd not want to be treated. So we normally think love another, give them a bowl of soup when they're sick, right? And say nice things to them. But of course, it also means the lo ta'aseh. It also means removing the things that might be causing harm. The maharsha, um, which is an acronym for Morenu Harav Shmuel Eliyahu, a great 16th century Polish Talmudic scholar, offers an interesting insight here, aware that we might be confused and think that we must do as much for others as we do for ourselves. I know few people like this, but I do know a few. He cautions us against this. Whatever is hateful to you, he quotes that, this refers to that which is written in the Torah, and you shall love your fellow as you love yourself. We can ask why Hillel altered the mitzvah by phrasing it in the negative. Whatever is hateful to you, do, do not do unto your, your friend, right? Just to step back for a moment. Remember, the, what's the mitzvah of the Torah? You shall love your fellow as you love yourself. But what did Hillel say in the Talmud? He said it in the negative. Don't do to another what's hateful to you. That's very different. Love someone as you love yourself, the Torah says. Hillel says the essence of the Torah is don't do to another what you don't want done yourself. It's the negative, not the positive. So why, so why the Maharsha asks? The answer is that the mitzvah itself is a type of prohibition, just like the other mitzvot in this verse. Now he connects the verse to the other mitzvot in the same verse. Not taking revenge and not bearing a grudge. Not so many people know that. But if you read the verse in Leviticus, the, all three of those mitzvot are in the same sentence, the same verse. You shall, right, don't take revenge, don't bear a grudge, you shall love an, another as you love yourself. It, and so he says, it is not an imperative to bestow an equal amount of goodness upon another, which we know from the legal principle, principle of chayecha kodmin, your own life comes first. So Maharsha says, we must um, guard our lives before the lives of others. If you have one water bottle and it is your life versus theirs, um, well, there are two views there as to what to do in the Talmud. One view is you must drink the water bottle and let the other person die. The other view is um, you should share the water bottle and likely both die. But there is not a view that you should give the water bottle away and thus uh, and thus die yourself. And so we do have a principle of saving ourselves first um, as an obligation to um, saving life, um, of course, without actively killing another. And so he says, loving another as we love ourselves does not mean loving them as much as we love ourselves. Um, um, to that extent, but striving to get somewhere close in a healthy balance. Rav Shneer Zalman of Liadi, known as the Altar Rebbe, the first Lubavitcher Rebbe, if you ever meet a Chabad rabbi, they're going to say, oh, come study with me, come study with me. And what are they going to want to study with you? The Tanya. All the Chabad Nikim, and I'm not denigrating it, it's great that they want to do this. They want to study the Tanya. The Tanya is their Bible. 
right? The, the Tanya is what the first Lubavitcher Rebbe wrote, the Alter Rebbe. And that is to them, their gospel. That is their, that is their book, um, this Alter Rebbe. Anyways, uh, so I don't study him like they, like they do, but I still enjoy his insights. And he taught that most people are not purely good or purely evil, something we already know. But here's how he fleshes it out and how it has implications for how we love others while still keeping our values in place. Here's what he says. Regarding that which is stated in the Talmud, that it is a mitzvah to hate someone who sins. Oh, what do we do with that? It's a mitzvah to love, but it's also a mitzvah to hate. This refers to someone who is your equal in learning and deeds and whom you have properly rebuked. But if they do not, they do not fit this description, Hillel the elder has taught us be like the disciples of our own, loving peace, pursuing peace, loving God's creatures and drawing them close to Torah. Those who are far from God's Torah must be drawn close with strong bonds of love. Thus, the mitzvot to love and to hate coexist. It is a mitzvah to hate the evil that exists within a person while loving the hidden spark of godliness that resides within them. Okay, so here we see once again, hate the sin, not the sinner. He moves this Talmudic approach of don't do to another that which we hate for ourselves and, and loving our fellow as we love ourselves and jiving that with the mitzvah to hate someone who sins as... Um, seeing the hidden sparks of godliness in everyone and not hating anyone, but only hating the evil that is within them. We can imagine some cases where that's very easy to do and some cases where that might be very hard to do. The goal in loving others is not just taking care of others, but ultimately fostering a lasting peace in this broader world. The Sefer HaChinuch teaches, the basis for this mitzvah is well known Namely, that a person will respond in kind to the way that they are treated. Fulfilling this mitzvah can bring peace to all living beings, right? And so why should um, uh, loving another as we love ourselves is not only ethical in its own right, it is also that it will inspire the other one to act in such a manner. When people are respected, they're more likely to respect. When people are loved, they're more likely to love. And so um, this will help to foster peace collectively. Pirkei Avot similarly teaches, Ben Azai says, you shall run towards a light mitzvah with the same diligence as a stringent mitzvah. And you should flee from an avera, for one mitzvah leads to another and one avera leads to another. And so we see here, again, the principle of uh, a ripple effect, how doing good leads to doing more good through habituation, and also doing wrong leads to, to wrong. I read something uh, a few days ago, which is overly simplistic, but one of those amazing simple truths. And the simple truth is this. We are likely to act in the same way everywhere. That is to say, if in one place we find it acceptable to be nasty, we are likely to be nasty everywhere, right? And if the most unexpected place we act lovingly, it is most likely to carry over as well. Some people think, oh, I'm going to show so much love to my close friends and family, but it doesn't matter when I'm in this space or that space. But in fact, it catches up. In the spaces where we act inconsistently, that habituation will carry over to our other spaces in life. And so everywhere we go is exercise, is the training ground of our behavior. And it will ultimately carry over. And so the notion that I will act kindly to these people, but not necessarily to these people, inevitably we will act unkindly to the people we wish not to act unkindly towards. Now, while Jews most certainly have moral duties to Gentiles, this particular mitzvah, as taught by the rabbis, is, uh, is about Ahavat Yisrael, love for our fellow Jews. In Unclus's translation of our original verse, he writes, and you shall have compassion for your fellow Jew. He literally translates that, Reyecha means your fellow within your community, as you have for yourself, I am God. 
But why is this specific mitzvah about the relationship between Jews and Jews? The answer lies in the fact that Judaism teaches and stresses that our relationships towards and with the other are different based on, on who the other is. We should not treat our mother the same way we treat our brother. And we should not treat our brother the same way we treat a stranger. We have a familial relationship and hence an obligation to family members above and beyond the relationship and obligation to others. So too, we have a unique relationship with Jews as a spiritual family. Justice is, is of course, for all humanity. Moral responsibility is for all humanity. But this unique love for a spiritual family is reserved for Jews, the rabbis teach. It does not detract from our universalism, but enhances it. Universal love is at times weak and confusing about moral priorities. Being in a community while never forgetting about our role within the broader community can strengthen us all. Our particularism will feed our universalism. May our love for our fellow Jews inform and enhance our love for all humankind. Okay, friends, I'm going to pause there and I would love to hear from you. Thank you so much. Hi, Lauren. Hi, I, I just want to thank you and uh, to say what a wonderful time to go over this because, yes. of course, we were in the nine days. Yes. And we know that we've lost <clears throat> probably the first temple as well. If, if we read uh, the prophets, we lost the temples and our sovereignty because of the, the hatred of one towards one fellow Jew. And um, I don't think this could be more emphasized. A wonderful, what a wonderful time to, to talk about it. The other thing I want to say is I really do believe, like, if you're taught menschlichkeit in your home, it, it transfers to everybody outside. You know, if you do love your fellow Jew, it's going to transfer to loving others as well. And um, I think it's because it's a good place to practice and, and, and to make it universal. Anyway, you know, thank you. Thank all you. I yeah. to say. It is a great reminder in these nine days. You're exactly right to remember Sinat Chinam and, and Rav Cook's teaching of Ahavat Chinam, baseless hatred and baseless love. And what's interesting is it's very easy to point to other Jews that we think of as haters. Maybe I'm super progressive and I think all those ultra Orthodox Jews are haters. Maybe I'm ultra Orthodox and I think all those progressives are haters of God and, and Torah, right? Maybe I'm left on Israel and I think those right-wing Zionists, you know, are haters of Arabs, or I'm a right-wing Zionist, and I think all those left-wing Zionists are self-hating Jews. It's very easy to think of that kind of Jew as, um, as the one full of hatred. But in fact, I think each of us can challenge ourselves. I think Deborah Lipstadt, the U.S. ambassador um, uh, on anti-Semitism appointed and finally uh, confirmed uh, for the Biden administration, um, was correct when she said that the Haredim, the ultra-Orthodox Jews at the Kotel, who were um, uh, shaming um, liberal Jews praying at the egalitarian section, that that was actually anti-Semitism, that we shouldn't just think of anti-Semites as Gentiles who, who hate Jews, but actually if Jews like hate Jews, that is a form of anti-Semitism as well. And so just like it's true there, I think there's also many liberal Jews who see the black hat Jew and they really hate them. Either they, re they resent them or they uh, just assume that they hate us. Um, and, um, and I think that it can also be a form of anti-Semitism. Um, so too with Israel. I know people who have become so anti-Israel in a sense that they really hate Israelis. They really hate them. Um, and uh, or just assume every Israeli is X, Y, or Z in a, in a form of anti-Semitism. And, and the opposite. I know Israelis who think diaspora Jews are like fake Jews. You know, these aren't real Jews. That's an anti-Semitism. So it, we don't have to label it all anti-Semitism. It's, it's a loaded word. But bracketing that, I think that, that Lauren pushes us to think about our hate. And I want to push us all to think about who is the kind of Jew I hate, right? And, um, and what do I do about that? Yes, hi, Aglaia. 
Okay, so talking about um, like internal. Okay, so I have the Torah right here on my on my Kindle. Sorry, I have to you know get it off this. So, but one of the original like dysfunctional family like situations. So, so I'm just gonna get this from Genesis 33. Okay, um, okay. So Jacob's just Jacob has just come out with all of his family and everything, and he says, uh, you know, um, Esau's asking why have. What do you mean by all this company, which I've met? He answered to gain my Lord's favor. Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Let what you have remain yours. But Jacob said, no, I pray you. If you would do me this favor, accept from me this gift, for to see your face is like seeing the face of God. Mm -hmm. And you have received me favorably. Mm -hmm. Please accept my present, which has been brought to you, for God has favored me and I have plenty. Mm -hmm. And when he urged him, he accepted Okay, so that's kind of where, okay, this whole discussion is kind of, you know, like going for me, <laughs> you know, so anyway, though, now talk about like brothers can't stand each other and have reason to not like each other and everything though um just uh, but it's also got that whole part about well if you love another person you see the face of God. And so that's what I wanted to just throw that out there if anyone cares to comment great great uh yeah uh, so i'll just respond to glaya's great point and then love to hear from others as well on this or other issues um yeah it's really such a powerful verse to see your face is like to see the face of god and um this is uh as 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 you know aglaya what our 20th century teachers martin buber and emmanuel levinas taught so deeply about the power of this encounter with the face of another, and in particular with family, um, with family who we may be afraid of or even um, dislike or hate um, in some ways, or um, and how that healing and reconciliation at times can be so profoundly godly. And that touches on what we talked about earlier around mm -hmm. this face of another. You know, there are times, we've talked about this in the past, there are times we need distance from family. And Yaakov and Esau modeled that. Oh, and yeah. <laughs> also Abraham, Abraham and Lot model that. Abraham and Lot go to their own spaces. But what does Abraham do as soon as Lot's in trouble? He goes and fights for him. Mm -hmm. So sometimes with family, we need distance. But when we're called upon, we may need to step up. And so, um, um, but one thing is pretty clear, which is we can learn a lot from the Torah. Family dynamics might not always be what we want to learn from the Torah, there's some very complicated <laughs> relationships involved over there. We might learn what to do. We might learn what not to do. Um, yes. Hi, Toby. I have a problem with the word love. Yeah. Right. I, um, I don't have any problem feeling sympathy for people. I don't have any problem even feeling empathy for those that I have interactions with. Mm -hmm. Um, what I do have is I don't have that love for people I don't know. You know, I, I have a, I have empathy for the situation that they find themselves in or that they were pushed into by us or by some other government or whatever. But I don't love them because I don't know them. Um, and but it but not loving them doesn't stop me from acting for justice or acting for what I perceive to be a fair outcome. In other words, it, it, it doesn't, I, I'm all for a living wage and all for making sure people have what they need to survive and not just grovel by. Um, but I don't love those people because I don't know. Right. Great. You know? Great. I don't thank you. Thank you, Toby. You know, there's a book I want to recommend. Um, um, written by C.S. Lewis, who was a, a politically conservative Christian uh, theologian and children's book writer and broadcaster um, and an interesting person. And he wrote a book called uh, Four Loves. Um, and he talks about how we use love um, to mean the same thing all, all the time, you know, but loving pizza is obviously different than loving a friend which is different than loving God, which is different than loving a movie, which is different than a like sexual kind of love, which is very different than a motherly kind of love. And so he says, we have this one word, but it's so overused and it means such different things. And so um, 
like my love for a Jew, my love for a neighbor, my love for humanity, my, my, my love for my mother, these are very different human experiences, even though we call it the same thing. And um, we would do well in differentiating. And, 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 and I think Toby's right. I, I, I do have trouble with those who, I'm very skeptical of people I meet who claim to love everyone. Um, you love everyone, huh? And, and, I, and I appreciate your distinction between love and justice because um, um, what, or what we might call care and justice, right? That, that love um, is kind of a, a, um, a personal and private dimension whereas justice is a public dimension, right? We, there, there's no one who doesn't deserve justice, but nobody deserves our love. Nobody has a right to our love. That's, that's something only we can grant as we wish, even though we're obligated to act justly. Now in Hebrew, it's interesting. The word for love is, as you know, ahava, ahava. And the root word of ahava is have. And have means to give. That is to say the root of loving is giving. The one who gives more loves more. That's why a parent almost always will love a child more than a child will love a parent, unless they become a caregiver later, maybe, um, because um, they are the one who typically gives more. Um, and so the way that we learn to love is not like, oh, I got people have this. I meet young people who have this like fairy tale understanding of romance that like they're just going to fall in love with someone. They're just like going to get hit by lightning. They're going to like some moment is going to I'm just like totally in love with you. Now, maybe maybe some of you have had that experience when you were 13 or 22 or 65. Maybe, maybe you've never had that experience. I'm, one of my dearest friends wanted to get married. He said, I've never had that. Should I get married? Should I marry this person? I never had this feeling of being like madly in love with them. And we talked about it and it was the perfect fit and they have a, such a happy marriage, but he never got hit over the head with this, this thing called. So what does it mean to love? Not that something hits us, that we practice giving to this person we want to give to. And in practicing consistently giving to them, we will deepen this sense of love that we have with them. That's very different than Hollywood. Right? Aglaia, yeah. Okay, sorry, I, but okay, especially when you start talking about marriage, okay, so historically marriages were not even supposed to be about falling in love and all of this. That's a really, really new concept. Okay, so it, it's kind of, one, uh, but the whole point though was that um, when it comes to marriages, that you're supposed to learn how to love each other. And so that's why I kind of think of love in, you know, like just what this means, you know, when we're talking about, okay, do you love your neighbor as yourself? It's something that you're actually not going to be perfect at. And it's something for you to strive for and keep working at and everything. Now, I was a little shocked when you brought up C.S. Lewis, though, because I actually like the screw tape letters. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, it's, great, great, it's, it's a great, fascinating book and play, yes. <laughs> okay, because it's kind of okay that was one of those things i was like okay basically like the like the the good guys and the bad guys are exactly yeah. the same right right <laughs> yeah okay so yeah, part of it, one yeah. thing about your first point um mm -hmm. so I, I about marriage i've been thinking about simone de beauvoir this week um as as many of you know simone de beauvoir never got married she felt it would be it would um it would break her commitment to authenticity to get married she had a lifelong um uh, deep romantic relationship with uh, Jean-Paul Sartre. Um, they're both founders of, of French uh, existentialism in the 20th century, of course. And she believed, like Sartre, that essence is something we create. At the core of our being is free will. And we choose what we are. That's to say existence precedes essence, right? That there is facticity. There are facts of our lives that we can't change. But in looking for freedom, um, um, we're looking for freedom where we can make change. And so she felt that marriage was an institution that was so loaded with cultural expectations and gender expectations that she could not, in her era at least, live authentically if she bought into the institution of marriage. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, and anyways, that's kind of a little side point of something I'm thinking about of like, um, her pushing us to be choiceful about what we choose rather than be forced into it. Um, and so too with love, we might kind of want to convince ourselves we love someone because an arrangement seems to work or because we really want to be married or really want X, Y, or Z when actually we don't, um, we don't. And so it's, and so too, we might feel like, 
um, with a different kind of relationship, a Yaakov or Esav or with a parent or, 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 or the like, that we really wish we felt something um, and we don't. Um, hi, yes, hi, Cheryl. Hi, glad to have you back. Thank you. Um, anyway, um, I was thinking about the Charles. I don't know why this came to my head when you were talking about love, but I was wondering about forgiveness in 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 the terms of love too, and the the shooting at Charleston in 2015 in the church, the, the Bible study, and those people, the family of those survivors, they. They said we forgive you. They didn't say we love you, but they forgave him. And so I'm wondering if, like, it's a, if maybe a, as a Christian tenet, that might be something that that's kind of lumped together: forgiveness and love. Mm, mm, I love that. You're absolutely right. It is deeply Christian. And I'll, I'll say something about Judaism as well. But the notion that um, Jesus Christ forgives you for your sins because Jesus loves you, right, is something that we should emulate as Christians, that we should be like Jesus and forgive our, uh, the person who hurt us and um, love them, because that is, um, that is what this, you know, our Messiah and our God has taught us to do. Um, and, that, and part of that is that we are innately sinners, and thus, we have to be a little bit more gentle because Jesus died for our sins. Um, and so we are forgiven based upon him taking that sacrifice for us. Um, and so um, that notion of love and forgiveness is so deeply uh, Christian and so deeply necessary. Um, now, there, there is a little problem there if you kind of look at the history of the, of the last 2,000 years and how that led to a lot of bloodshed. That's not me accusing Christianity at large or even Christians at large, of course. Um, but if you look at that history in the name of Jesus doing enormous amounts of violence. Um, uh, and so um, it is, It is. but nonetheless, um, even though that's how they think of it, does not mean that our Jewish theology has to distance itself from that, even though I find that notion to be problematic. Um, I think that when it comes to the relationship of forgiveness and, um, and love in Judaism, I think we can say at least two things to kind of start the conversation. Um, one of which is, yes, we do have a notion of divine forgiveness um, connected to Teshuvah, of course, repentance, connected to Yom Kippur, but most importantly, connected to repairing the wrongs we have done, um, specifically repairing them. Um, and so we do have this, this notion of God's forgiveness and this notion of, of not only an obligation to go to others to ask for forgiveness, but also an obligation to grant forgiveness, um, which of course is complicated. Um, and when we have to do that and when we don't have to do that. And the sense there that the first step, according to some of our teachers, is that love has to precede the forgiveness. If someone has truly wronged us, we cannot truly forgive them if we don't hold some love for them, is what is taught. Now, maybe we can imagine hypothetically, or maybe it works differently for you than what they're saying, where you could imagine still hating someone or not loving someone um, in any way at all and still being able to forgive them. Now, that's Christianity, that's Judaism, a lot more to say about both of those. But the one thing I want to add is just the psychological dimension beyond the theological, which is that we know that forgiveness um, is can be more about ourselves than about others, right? Yes, there is the type of forgiveness where we want to heal a relationship. We want to relieve the other person of the terrible guilt they feel by saying, I forgive you and have them feel better and have them move on, have a sense of completion. Right. But bracketing what they need, or if we want a relationship at all, our own sense of forgiveness can be healing for ourselves. Our ability to move on from the toxicity of holding on to the anger, of holding on mm -hmm. to the resentment. Mm -hmm. um, and so there we might see a spiritual imperative of, of forgiveness for our own actualization in a broader realm. Um, 
So, wow. So much more to say there, but Eddie, Eddie, I see your hand up and then we'll see, uh, we'll go to anyone else who hasn't yet spoken before we circle back to some others as well. Okay. Rabbi, I have uh, three things that have come up for me real quickly. Um, uh, when we were talking about the differentials of love in Spanish, we have that very clearly set. Um, we have amar, which is a romantic, like you say, te amo to somebody that you, you say like your spousal or you're a romantic and you say te quiero to your family. It's, it's all the same as love, but it's very differentiating. And that's why, um, I remember one time my, my mom laughed at my cousin who doesn't speak Spanish very well. He told te amo to my grandma and they, they kind of laughed because that's not the language that you use. You would say te quiero. Um, and I thought that was very interesting because in, in, in other languages, there is a very clear distinction of different types of love very, very clearly to be able to separate that love is not all one exact same thing. And then also what comes to mind to me as well, um, I, I think that the mitzvot of loving the stranger, um, it might be the hardest one. And I think it might be the hardest one because it's replicated, replicated so many times. If it was so easy, it would just be mentioned once. But I think back to like the things that are the hardest, our parents would always tell us more consistently. And I think that that one is one of the hardest mitzvot to keep up. Um, and then lastly, um, what came to mind for me was when uh, you talked about the, the behaviors of what you do, uh, typically when nobody's watching or what you do when you, you think somebody's watching is what characterizes in the future. Um, there was a study that showed people who put their carts away uh, typically have a greater moral um, uh, moral compass than people who just leave their carts, their shopping carts anywhere. And, and I love that. I love that concept because uh, uh, putting your shopping cart, there's nobody enforcing it. Nobody's going to uh, like hurt you or hound you if you don't do it. Nobody's watching you. But if you do it, you know that it's the right thing to do. And I, I think that that's one of the most crucial things. Thanks for this great class. Yeah, thanks for that. Just, just pick you say one word on your last point. It's such a great experiment. Carry a pen and paper and find if you ever ask yourself in the day or in the week, um, if, you're ever, if you're ever internally asking yourself, is someone watching me, right? Note, note when and if you ever say that. Like, is someone watching me, you know, um, you know, uh, in, in any, in any type of scenario, or I'm only doing this because no one is here. Right. It's sort of an interesting, there's a great midrash. We have to study together, all of us together sometime around. Um, it says how if X, Y, and Z biblical figures knew that the act they, they were about to do, um, was going to be written and recorded for all time, how they would have chosen something different. Right. And so too, like this notion that, imagine is that the next choice we make is our legacy moment, right? Is the moment that we'll be known for all times. It's like, we try to construct our, le our legacy with a will, with a living will, with like the things we want to put in a bio or online or whatever the case is, but actually like those moments that we might think of as trivial are sometimes our defining moments. And so uh, thank you for that. And it's a great reminder. Cause I, I, cause I recently have been very lazy with my, I confess with my shopping carts, I, I sometimes am so bad. I even put it up on like this little ledge. I kind of throw it up on the ledge a little bit, you know, and I'm like, ah, it's 110 degrees. It's someone's job out here. Oh, and then the worst argument that can creep into people's brain. Somebody wouldn't have a job if I did it. They, they need me to leave it here. So they have a job. I'm like, oh, geez, how did that even enter my head? <laughs> so, right. So, um, so thank you for that reminder about the, about the shopping cart. Um, you know, it's, uh, Okay. Anyways. Um, so one, just one other thing on forgiveness as well. So oftentimes the question comes up as well. Um, what if someone has died and the traditional approach actually is that we take a minion to their grave. We take a minion to their grave to ask forgiveness if they're not alive. That's kind of a complicated thing. Um, but there, there was one rabbi a few, um, years ago who famously, um, he wrote an article and, um, kind of argued against and, kind of an intense way uh, uh, against a, uh, a rabbi who was deceased. And he realized he kind of got it wrong. So he brought a minion to that rabbi's grave to ask for forgiveness in a way he couldn't correct it. So um, th now that doesn't have much to do with love, but um, okay. So Steve and Yehuda or Vicky, Francine or Eric, just want to see if any of you want to jump in before we circle back to some others here. Uh, rabbi. Yes, uh, hi, Steve. Hi, hi, hi. Thank you very, very much. Um, in my 
kind of getting long in tooth life. I have known people who have been troubled and, and what epitomizes their trouble is a scorn for themselves, a mm. self-deprecation to the point where I almost hope someone would come up with love thyself as you would have your neighbor uh, love you. Yeah. Uh, that's just part one. Yeah. Uh, part, part two is I once went to what I thought was a Chabad party and I got there and didn't realize it was a, a service. So I kind of tried to sneak into the corner, not knowing what the heck I was doing there. And the rabbi came over to me and said, Steve, we know you have no idea why you are here. Let me just say, we love having you here. And I said, Rabbi, you know me, I'm a, a, a reformed Jew. And I don't understand all this. He said, no, 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 you are not a reformed Jew. You're a Jew. I said, what does it mean to be a Jew? And he said, compassion with no judgment. And so is compassion in Judaism the same as empathy mm. and is no judgment, love thy neighbor as you would have them love you? I love that. Steve, thank you so much for both of those points. Um, so, um, on your first point, I, I love how you flipped it as opposed to love your neighbor as you love yourself, love yourself as you love your neighbor for those who actually are really good at being good to others, um, but really struggle to be good to themselves or to be compassionate to themselves. I do want to highly recommend, um, and if you're interested in, in her name, I can let you know, a, a workbook on self-compassion if anyone feels, I think I recommend it to anyone, regardless of how high we think our sense of self-compassion is, uh, that helps us to um, helps us to work on um, really uprooting the barriers towards our own self-compassion, which should not be conflated with something like self-care or like, oh, just go to the spa, you know, um, I have nothing against the spa, <laughs> um, but um, but really is a much deeper psychological and spiritual notion of just um, we, we just internalize so many terrible things as young children in our brains and hearts around kids that said mean things to us, parents who didn't say things we needed them to say. And it takes a lifetime of effort to even come close to uprooting the, those voices inside of us that are very much not compassionate to us, tell ourselves we're, we're too fat or too old or too stupid um, that are constantly telling us we're not enough. And... Um, and so thank you for that reminder. And it's also just a reminder that um, people are more at risk than ever, ever. The suicide rates are just through the roof. I mean, um, and even, even short of suicide, just the, um, the levels of depression, the levels of, of self, uh, like you said, deprecation. We normally use that as like a positive form of humor, self-deprecating humor, but self-deprecation that people really put themselves down because they really believe it. So thank you very much for that. And I think that the rabbis do push us in that direction. You really want to actualize love for another to do it the right way. It also includes the imperative of learning to love yourself, of learning to love yourself um, for all that you, for all that you are. To your wonderful second point, while it's true, we have one, maybe two words for love. Um, Eddie pushed us to think about Spanish. I know in French, we have je t'aime, I love you. J'adore, like to adore, to, to like, you know, my kids always say at dinner, I don't like it. I love it. Right. They, <laughs> you know, to, to you know, demonstrate that they can use both words. Um, but I think so too. Compassion, we have many words as well. Chesed is also translated by some as love, even though we normally tr translate it as kindness. Chesed, just like Hasidic, we translate as pious, but could also be understood as, as a notion of love. But compassion, there is no word for empathy, really. Um, but I think it really is blended with compassion. Rachamim, um, or to be rachum v'chanun. We say on the high holidays that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is rachum v'chanun, chanun v'rachum. Um, we have chen, kind of a type of grace. And so we do have these notions of compassion, which, again, I don't want to um, make them too unromantic, but are really um, taught to be behaviors more than just feelings, that we should act, we should act um, compassionately 
um, towards others. And that is to say, like you said, to withhold judgment of who is deserving of compassion and demonstrate it simply for the one who is vulnerable in front of us. That's very hard to do. That is very hard to do because our, um, uh, typically the question emerges very quickly. Does this person deserve my time, my effort, my resources, a space in my heart, my compassion? And um, most of us have a quick kind of defense mechanism to protect our time and resources that says, ah, that person is not the one I need to help. That person has someone else who's helping them. That person's not like me. They have people of their own type who are going to help them. That person has enough. That person deserves it, right? We have a, like a dozen different layers that emerge when we see someone in need that tell us, you don't need to be compassionate here. This is not the one for you. Your space for compassion is over there. So thank you, Steve. It's very powerful. Um, Vicky or Eric or Francine or Yehuda? Great. Let's circle back to Toby and then Aglaia. Uh, I, I was a Christian once, long time ago, Presbyterian, uh, before I realized that I was actually Jewish. But anyway, um, bottom line is uh, getting back to the forgiveness issue. Uh, it, it's very different for Christians. You don't have to do anything. Just, you know, like God's going to forgive your sins. You know, you don't have to do anything, you know, you know. I guess the Catholics require confession, things like that. But the Presbyterians, we don't need any of that. Uh, but the Jews, which is one of the reasons why I love being Jewish, is by we require a bunch of stuff. You know, the high holy days, we have to make amends. You know, we have to go to the person and say, oh, I, I wronged you and I did this, that, and the other thing. And we have to do that three times, even if they don't want to forgive us. And then we have to not do it again, which I think is the most critical part of that. It's like the Christians don't require not doing it again. Mm -hmm. So you're free to go off and be mm -hmm. nasty to somebody else, which I don't get. You know, uh, thank you, Toby. One of the reasons I think Judaism is unpopular in some circles is precisely for what I think it's most powerful for. It's very demanding. In an era where people want religion to be just feel good, right? I, I, so forget religion. I'll just be spiritual. I'll just go to yoga, right? I'll just go to a meditation five minutes and be done, right? Judaism is very demanding. It asks a lot of us. And that's not me saying other religions don't necessarily, but I, but I do agree with the sentiment you shared. And I think that that's one of the big questions. If one just only wants to just feel good, there's a whole bunch of social ways to do that. I think Judaism says, like, we have to be pushed morally every day to think about who we are and what we're doing to serve others, right? We need to think critically, even about the ideas that are hard for us. We have to do the work of like, like you just said, of like fixing some of the, our behaviors, each of us. And that's, that's, that's hard stuff. It's really hard stuff. And some people say, ah, oh, the key to, to Judaism success, make it fun, make it fun for everybody. I have nothing against fun, but I really think it's mis-selling what we have to offer. We have something far more meaningful, far deeper, far smarter than just fun. I know that many programs like want to give a keg of beer and just, you know, say, yay, Jews in the room, have a great time, right? And I, I'm, I'm not against, I'm not against that. You yeah, go for it, you know, but I really think that what we have to offer most is actually raising the bar of the human experience raising the bar of the capacity for human meaning making, raising the bar for the capacity for how humans can behave morally and, and compassionately. So thank you, Toby. Aglaia, last point, and we, and, and we got to close up here. Oh, okay. So actually, it's kind of piggybacking on the last point that you made, you know, like you got to raise the bar and everything. So long story short, though, um, just to do this a fast way, though, what I might do, if, depending on how mature the class is, um, I might show them a video that has a lot of not so nice language, though, but it's a, a, an African god on a slave ship. And he's basically telling these enslaved people, though, oh, by the way, you don't know what is like what's headed for you and everything. So now I'll turn off the video and say, okay, everybody's now worked up emotionally and say, okay, so those Dutch slave traders that they were talking about, do you forgive them? 
And usually people look at me like, are you out of your mind? Now, most of the time, though, like what I've noticed is that most of the time people don't want to answer the question. Sometimes people will say flat out no. And actually, I've had two who are admitted Trump supporters who said flat out no, which was really interesting to me. Sometimes um, uh, Jewish students and Black students usually are the ones who say yes because of the religion. And then older students are the ones, people who are over 35 are usually the only ones who are going to say Yes, because you don't know what withholding forgiveness will do to you. It right. will screw up everything. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, so much to say there. And I know there's a whole compa uh, conversation around Holocaust studies, mm -hmm. around how we are not the ones who have the a right or ability to forgive. Mm -hmm. um, like, for example, what Nazis did, because right. we weren't the ones who would directly experienced it. So too, um, you know, that, that those who were slaves are the only ones who could actually forgive, not those who are a few generations later, even though the repercussions and implications mm -hmm. for their lives still matter post-Holocaust, post-slavery. So, so much more to say about that as we think about forgiveness for historical things. And I'm thinking this week about the Pope going to Canada and um, asking for forgiveness of the treatment of indigenous people in Canada. I don't know if you followed that case. Um, I haven't heard about that. Yeah, the Pope just flew to Canada and it um, to ask for forgiveness um, from these native people. Lots more to say, friends. We'll see you next week. Have a wonderful day. You're all amazing.